Gracious Heavenly Father, as we take our attention and we turn it towards you and your word, I was reminded today that your word is powerful. When your spirit, your breath, attends your word, it changes, it makes, it creates, it cuts, it heals, it restores, it delivers. And so we prepare ourselves to hear with faith today your words. Let Paul's words in Colossians tutor and teach, help, restore, and heal. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're going back to Colossians this morning, and we're in Colossians chapter 1, and we've been spending a number of weeks looking at an opening prayer in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the, to the Colossians, and we're going to look at it one more week. And so I'm going to be reading verses 9 through 14, we'll be focusing this week on verses 12 through 14. So Colossians 1, 9 through 14, this is God's word. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you, To share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been saying that we want to let this prayer of Paul's tutor us to become people of prayer. I've said that I felt the Lord leading me deeper into a life of prayer, telling me, Ben, I want you to be a man of prayer. I want you to be able to look at your wife and your kids and your congregation and to wholeheartedly say, I have never ceased praying for you. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the main content of this prayer, what Paul is asking for. And here, we look at the end of Paul's prayer where we see him giving thanks. He begins just by saying, giving thanks to the Father. Thanksgiving 
is a key part of our prayer life. And so I just want to start out with a question. When you pray to God, what do you thank him for? It should be a real long list. But what do you typically thank God for? My kids typically thank God for their mom. It's a good thing to thank God for. For food, for the good parts of our day. Nothing should be excluded from the list of what we thank God for. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank God for food. We thank him for the breath in our lungs. We thank him for new and fresh mercies. We thank God for people. Paul's already done that in this letter. But you know what else we should thank God for? We should thank God for God. Maybe that's the primary thing we should thank God for. We thank God for God, who he is and what he's done. It's right there in the Lord's Prayer when the disciples, looking at their Lord Jesus, said, teach us how to pray. He said, this is the first thing you should say. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing you should do is hallow, which we don't know what that means. Oh, we praise. We give thanks. We stand in wonder at who you are, Father in heaven. Everywhere in the scripture we are exhorted and encouraged to give praise to God for God, to give him a sacrifice of praise. And it happens so often, this clarion call to praise God and to hallow his name, it makes us wonder, why do we need to thank God for God? Sometimes it bothers us. Why is a God who is completely holy loving, and self-sufficient, always telling us to praise Him. A meager creature of His own imagining. Why do I need to tell Him how great He is? Is He insecure? Is He a massive megalomaniac that loves to read and reread His own press clippings? Is he so easily to manipulate that it's better to butter him up before you ask for stuff? That's not even close. This Halloween gratitude business, what we find in this prayer is it's not for God's benefit at all. It's for my benefit and it's for yours. Because when God is big, our problems seem small. And God gets big when we thank him for what he's done. Does that seem too childish for you? It shouldn't. 
When God is big, our problems get small. And God gets big when we thank him for what he's done. I want you to see the purpose that this prayer of thanksgiving plays in Paul's prayer. It's really cool. To understand this prayer of thanksgiving, you need to know what preceded it. And what preceded it was Paul asking for God to give this congregation the power to endure hardship with patience and joy. To endure hardship with patience and joy. The next thing he says is giving thanks. And what I want to prove to you is the giving of thanks serves the prior clause. In other words, how does one endure hardship with patience and joy by giving thanks to the Father for what he has done? Let me try to prove how the logic works in Paul's mind. So one of the reasons that Paul is writing the letter in the first place is that the Colossians are being faced with all of these false teachers, telling them lies, telling them that they need more than Jesus, trying to rob them of their joy. And Paul talks about this false teaching three times in the book in Colossians chapter 2. And I just want to read those to you because I think it's instructive for what Paul's doing in this prayer of thanksgiving. And the first thing I want you to notice about these statements is that in each one, Paul is saying, the reason you're being led astray is because you don't have a vision of Jesus that's big enough. You've let these voices in your culture, these voices from outside, diminish and distort the exalted Christ. And so first, Colossians 2, verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the, this world, and not according to Christ. So he's saying, if you don't, embrace a Christ that's big enough and clear enough, you are going to be sitting ducks for Christ-diminishing, Christ-distorting philosophies and lies and traditions. Don't do it. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, he says this. So first he says, don't let anybody take you captive by lies. And secondly, he says, let no one pass judgment on you. In terms of questions of food or drink, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. He's saying if you don't have a vision of Christ that's big enough, you're going to let people bring you under judgment. You're going you're to easily fall into traps of thinking that there's of people who are saying there's things you need to do. It's not good enough yet. You need to work harder. And then Colossians 2, 
18 through 19 says this, so let no one take you captive by lies, let no one pass judgment on you to condemn you, and in Colossians 2, 18 and 19, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head which is Christ. In other words, if you don't have a Christ that's big enough and clear enough, you'll, be, you'll stop holding fast to Christ, who is the all-supplying head of the body, and you will fall prey to the voices that saying, you aren't qualified. You need more. The problem in each case, you've been taken captive. People are saying, you're captive. Don't be taken captive. Don't fall under condemnation. Don't let people disqualify you. And in each case, he says, the solution is Christ. You've forgotten about Christ, who he is, and what he's done. So those are the three problems facing the Colossian church. Now think about the three things that Paul is praising God for. So In Colossians 2.18, he says, let no one disqualify you. What is he praising God for? In verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In Colossians 2, he says, let no one condemn you, pass judgment on you. Well, what does he praise God for? Giving thanks to the Father in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Colossians 2, it says, don't let anybody take you captive. What is he thanking God for in chapter 1? He has delivered us, rescued us from captivity, from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's not thanking God in general. These are precision strikes on the particular Christ-distorting lies that they were facing. So that they would remember who God is. Praise him for what he's done and remember. He is thanking God so that they can better fight error and discouragement. So that they can endure with joy because Christ has been rightly exalted in their minds. Thanking God so that they can better fight error and discouragement so that they can endure with joy. Here's my question. Is that how you use gratitude in your Christian walk? Is that what you think Thanksgiving is for? To help you better fight error And discouragement so that you can endure life's hardships with joy. I typically think think that we thank God when we feel thankful. Like it's an overflow of emotion 
and feeling from a heart that has been made glad. But what Paul is saying is that you are discouraged because you're hearing all these things. You have all these voices saying you're disqualified, you're living in darkness, and you're condemned. Let's thank God then so that we can remember that thank, thanking God isn't always about emotion. Sometimes it's about formation. Sometimes it's about the fight. Which means that sometimes you have to thank God for God when you don't feel thankful at all. It's pretty similar to how I think about praise and worship. Now, I'm pretty active when I praise and worship. And I just looked over to my wife and she just gave me the big eyes. Because that's why I sit up front. Because they're embarrassed of my worshiping. (laughs) When I worship, I sway. Sometimes I lift my hands. Sometimes I'll do a full X mode. Sometimes I'll release the dove. Sometimes I'll just close my eyes. Uh, And people will come up to me and say, Man, you are so into God. How, how is your heart always primed for worship? Because I'm so distracted and I'm thinking about this and that. And it seems like you're always really into it. And when I hear them say that, I just laugh. Because here's the thing. Occasionally, I am lost in wonder and love, and praise. But the majority of the time, when I'm closing my eyes and lifting up my hands, it's not about emotion. It's about formation. I'm doing those things precisely because I'm not where I want to be. And I am using my body to drag my heart to the place where God desires it to go. It's a way of saying to God, I want to see you here. But I'm so distracted by the concerns of tomorrow. I'm kind of planning what I'm going to have for dinner right now. Or me, I'm sitting up there and I'm thinking about the sermon. Is this point going to land? How am I going to open the thing? Oh, I forgot about announcements or whatever. I'm distracted. And then and, and what I'm doing is... My mouth is proclaiming the greatness of the Lord, but my heart's not there. So I better release the dove. I better sway. I better put my hands out and posture my body as a way to remind my heart to go where my body is taking it. So praise is sometimes an overflow of our hearts. And when it is, that's good. But so often it's about intentionally turning our hearts and minds to where they're not looking. And the same thing is true of thanksgiving. Our Father, hallowed be your name. There's so many lesser things that your heart has been hallowing. And sometimes you're hallowing God and you're thanking him for what he's done because it's this overflow of your heart. 
But most of the time, you're thanking God. You're bringing to mind his attributes, what he's done. And what you're doing is you're, you're ripping your mind and your attention off of the lies. And you're placing them on the exalted Christ. You're taking your thoughts and your attention, which is so distracted, and you're placing it on the one thing that matters. To give you new perspective. Tim Keller passed away this week. A pastor in our denomination, a man who has had a profound effect on this church and certainly my own life. Kate texted me the news clipping and I was at the gym and I just broke. I wept like a child on the floor of Planet Fitness. And people thought I was weird. And I, w- I w- just wondered why I felt the way I did. And to be honest, his death scared me. Because I thought, what does this mean? We need his voice, is what I thought. I need his voice. It's been such a clarifying, moderate voice in a culture that's gone bananas. And he is such a moderate person in my denomination who's kind of kept it from untangling. I was scared, I think, to lose him. But then I remembered the sermon I was preaching and I thought, I'm going to start to pray. Let me praise. And I began with thanking God for the hope of heaven. That one day I'll be with Tim Keller forever. (laughs) I I, I thanked God for his words and his wisdom because it was never Keller himself. He was just expositing what was already in God's word. And I thank to God that in every generation there has been men and women, prophets and, and helpers of the church who has helped it clarify what it was. And I just went through all their names in their minds and I just thanked him for the impact that one man could have on my life. And I prayed to have half of that impact on one life maybe in mine. And I just, I praised. And I, that didn't mean I wasn't grieving anymore. But it reshaped the moment. It dragged a little bit of heaven into a dark corner of earth. And it changed the atmosphere. Paul's prayer of gratitude here, as he gives thanks to the Father, it's written from prison. He's in prison. And it's written at the same time that he wrote Ephesians. And I would, I would argue that Colossians and Ephesians have, have Paul's most Christ-exalting prayers in them. But he's not praying from some posh hut with a feather-tipped pin in his hand. He's in house arrest. On his knees, on hard ground, journaling prayer in a dark cell, and he's thanking God. He's not asking for deliverance. He's thanking God for a greater deliverance. He's on the floor of a cell, and he's remembering that there's a darkness darker than the one he's experiencing. 
There's a prison worse than the prison that he's in. And he's been freed from that. And he's finding, as he gives thanks, endurance, patience, and joy in the midst of hardship. And I thought about, man, I thought about another time that Paul's in prison and he kind of does the same thing. So in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are on their way to a prayer meeting and they heal this trafficked girl who was in desperate need because people were using her for profit. And the people got upset about the fact that they're losing money. And so they lock Paul and Silas up on a bogus charge. So instead of leading a prayer meeting, they are now thrown in jail in shackles. This is the next verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. There in the darkness, chained, feet fastened in stocks, they prayed and praised and practiced gratitude. Were they delusional? No, they understood the power of what they were doing. It was defiant thanksgiving, defiant praise. I thought about Psalm 34 all week this week thinking about this text. Psalm 34 just says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Magnify the Lord with me. Exalt his name together. It's about sight. Magnify. Like a magnifying glass. It's a way of seeing. It's saying, I can't see God right now. We're in prison. Let's magnify the Lord together. Let's enlarge our view of him so we can detect his presence even here, even now. How do we do that? Let's exalt his name together. Let's give thanks to God in heaven because he has qualified us, because he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, because in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's praise and and sing hymns of praise to him. So they weren't just caught up in wonder and euphoria. There in the prison, this was a gritty move. Gritty thanksgiving. Earthy praise. A Philip Yancey quote. He says, for me, Jesus has become the focal point of faith. And increasingly, I am learning to keep the magnifying glass of faith focused on him. In my spiritual journey, I have long lingered on the margins, puzzling over matters like the problem of pain, the conundrum of prayer, providence versus free will, and when I do, everything gets fuzzy. Looking at Jesus, however, restores clarity. That's the subtext of the prayer here. And that's the subtext of the a cappella hymn session coming from Paul's cell. Everything is fuzzy. And so I'm looking to Jesus so that clarity can be restored. I'm going to hollow his name. 
And so gratitude isn't just for the feelers. It's for the courageous. It's for those who are courageous enough to express faith. That after staring into the darkness of this world and the cheap medication it offers, to then turn our gaze back to God and to trust Him alone to be our qualifying Savior, our deliverance, our light. Back to Acts 16. So they're, pra- they're praising God. And here's the thing. People took notice. The prisoners started listening. And you, you know who else took notice of their defiant praise? God. And here was the result. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake. And the foundations of the prison were shaken And at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains fell loose. Praise. It not only allowed them to endure, it freed them. It set them free. Maybe we don't always feel a physical earth shake. Earthquake. Maybe we don't always feel the chains fall off, but the chains in our heart, the prison inside of fear and condemnation and darkness, that is freed. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, hallowed God, great in the heavens, reigning on high, we give you praise. We thank you because you have qualified us. There are so many voices telling us we are unqualified, Lord. Voices in our culture saying you got to do this stuff. You got to work hard. You got to get it right. You got to be perfect. Do you have your resume all good? Do you have enough volunteer hours to get into the college that you want? Because if you don't get into the college you want, then you won't get the job that you want, and then your life will be ruined. All the pressure that we feel to be qualified, the pressure that young people feel, the pressure that our kids feel. And yet, God, you qualify us. You have done it. And you have delivered us From a kingdom of darkness. Sometimes it can feel like the darkness is going to win, Lord. The darkness of our circumstances, the forces beyond our control. Lord, sometimes I think things that are so dark, so horrific that I think the darkness inside of me is winning. But you, Lord, 
have delivered us from the domain of darkness. And you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son so that we are beloved. And Lord, you have done it in such a way that that status and that love and that qualification is irrevocable. You have paid the price for us. That's what redemption means. A price has been paid. A ransom has been delivered. And we now belong to you forever with the status forgiven, with the status beloved. And so I guess there's nothing left for us to do than to magnify your name. We don't need these words of praise any less than the Colossian church did. Thank you for all that you have done. Help us incorporate gratitude into our prayer life, Lord, so that our problems get small and you get big. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.